Good morning, Hallows Church, and good morning to Cross and Crown. Welcome to this unique and special morning together. My name is Jeff. I help to provide leadership here at the Edmonds Expression of the Hallows Church. Thank you for, thank you for hosting us two weeks ago. We're happy to return the favor today as we continue kind of asking the Lord what he might be up to, how he might be leading us into the future here in Edmonds, whether as two complementary gospel voices or whether he might have us come together as, as one. And so we are trusting him with the process and we're trusting him with the future. And so thank you for uh, leaning into this process with us. It is uh, very much my privilege today uh, to lead us through our study of the scriptures. We'll be exploring the passage that you heard uh, just read a few moments ago by Jesse, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, a very, very beautiful passage. Now, I will say on most Sundays when I come up here like this, I, I always thank everybody for coming. I thank you for joining us, and the reason I do that is because I'm grateful for every person who comes into this place to be with us, and, and today is no exception. So thank you very much for coming. I'm happy that you're here. But I'd like to do something a bit differently today. I want to not only thank you because you're here, I, I'd like to ask you to consider this morning uh, why you're here. Why are you here? Now, if you're from Cross and Crown, you may, may be thinking, that's a strange question, Jeff. We're here because you invited us here, and, and I did, and, and thank you for coming, but th that's, not what I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm asking is why. Why do the people of the Hallows Church come into this space each and every Sunday at 9 a.m., or for some of you, 9.05 or 9.10 a.m., and <laughs> you know who you are. And why do the people of Cross and Crown move into your space up on 196 each and every morning at 10 a.m.? Why do you do it? Why do we do it week in and week out? And what are you anticipating? What are you expecting when you do? Different people have different reasons, I think, different uh, expectations when it comes to church. Some people, I think, go to church primarily for the friendship and the, the fellowship, and those, those are wonderful things. Some people go to church each week because they're, they think they're uh, supposed to go to church each week. There's a certain sense of obligation, and because of that, some people go to church because they feel bad, they feel guilty if, if they don't go to church. Some go to church because they think it might be good for their kids or they, or they think it might be good for, for their spouse. Some people go to church to be entertained. Some people expect go to church expecting to be inspired. Uh, different people have different reasons for going to church. But I hope that none of those reasons are, are the reasons why you're here today. I hope the reason that you show up at church each Sunday is not because you have to or, or you're supposed to, but because you want to. And at some deep level, you actually, you actually need to. I hope the reason you're here today is that you've come to understand that something, something unique happened in the, in the gathering of God's people, something that nothing else in this world can offer, something that renews our minds and, and recalibrates our hearts before we must turn and face another Monday morning. I hope the reason why you come to church and I hope the reason why you're here today is, is to worship to worship our God together as his people because I believe we, we need it. The human heart has a deep and fundamental need for, for worship. 
And so I'd like to talk about that a little bit today. I'd like to talk about worship, uh, what it is, uh, what is, what is worship anyways. Some Christians hear the word worship and the first thing they think of is, is music, right? And we can and we should uh, worship our God through music and, and through singing. I, I hope you will do that today. I certainly intend to. But worship is far more than, than just music and, and singing. The word worship actually comes from an old English word, worthship. And the word has to do with ascribing worth. It has to do with ascribing worth or value to something or to someone. And so to worship something really means to see that something as most valuable to you. To worship something means to prize or to, to treasure that something above everything else in your life and to, to respond accordingly in your life and, and with your life. That's what it means to, to worship. And as you might expect, the Bible has a lot to say about worship. But what you may not expect is that a lot of what the Bible has to say about worship has nothing at all to do with, to do with God. You see, we were designed to worship our creator. We were designed to worship God. That's what the Bible teaches. But it also teaches that sin entered into the picture in Genesis chapter 3 and, and really distorted our worship and distorted everything. And as a result, the Bible teaches that the human heart worships the, the wrong things. It cannot help but worship all sorts of things other than God. This is why the Apostle Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, that people, they exchange the truth about God for a lie. And there it is. They worship and serve what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. Worshiping and serving that which has been created instead of the creator. Do you know any people that, that do that? Do you, do you ever do that? In many ways, the Bible teaches that the very essence of sin is, is misplaced worship, right? It's counterfeit, counterfeit worship. It's, it's people overvaluing the creation and undervaluing or, or ignoring altogether the, the creator. And the Bible says everybody is doing it, whether they know it or not, and whether they believe in, in God or not. There's an author and a professor named David Foster Wallace. He had some fascinating things to say about this. While giving a commencement speech at Kenyon College in Ohio, David Foster Wallace, a professing atheist, he began talking about worship. And listen to what he said. He said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship, he says. And get this, pretty much anything you worship, he says, will eventually eat you alive. He says if you worship money and things, if that's where you tap your real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel like you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before your loved ones finally grieve you. Worship power 
and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll need ever more power over others to numb yourself to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen by others as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Let me add a few more to the list that I'm borrowing from the work of Timothy Keller. Worship your spouse or your partner, and you will be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. Worship your children, and you will try to live your life through them until they resent you or have no self of their own. Worship pleasure and self-gratification, and you will find yourself addicted to something or to someone. Worship relationships and approval of others, and you will be controlled by what those others think of you. Finally, worship a cause or a movement or a political party, and you will divide those in the world into good and bad, and you will demonize your opponents, and ironically, you will be controlled by your enemies, because without them, you will have no real purpose, he says. Here's a very smart man, a very deep thinker, considering uh, the human condition we find ourselves in and, and arriving at a conclusion about the human heart that is entirely consistent with what the Bible has to say about these things, too. Now, not too long after giving this speech at Kenyon College, David Foster Wallace, he took his own life. He, he hung himself in his home. And this non-religious man's parting words are, are pretty haunting. He says the real question is not, are you worshiping, but who or what are you worshiping? He says everybody's worshiping something, and whatever that something is, it will eventually eat you alive. Now, the Bible, of course, would qualify that statement. The Bible would say that whatever that something is, if that something is anything other than the God who created you, it will indeed begin to to eat you alive. It will eventually begin to control you and, and to consume you. Friends, this has very practical importance for us as Christians, because if we're going to be honest, our hearts, they wander, right? They they wander into worshiping the wrong things. Our priorities, our affections, our desires, they they become disordered at times without us even, even knowing it. Sin can so easily deceive and distract us into, into overvaluing the things of this world and into undervaluing our our Lord Jesus. And so what does this wandering worship look like in your own heart this week, this this month, this year? And do you realize it's happening? Because it is always happening at, at some level. And so is it money? Is it your career? Is it control or comfort? Is it beauty? Is it popularity? Is it porn? How does your worship tend to wander away from the creator and and toward created things instead? Fortunately, Paul is going to show us here in this passage today how we kind of go about uh, confronting and correcting this wandering worship that can so easily happen in our hearts. He's going to remind us how we go about recentering our hearts and relocating our highest affections on Jesus, when we come into this place each week, this passage today is very beautiful. It's very famous. 
And one thing that's pretty hard to miss here is how Paul is reveling in God's goodness and God's grace as he, as he writes these words. Over the years, translators have uh, really broken this passage down into the many verses and the many uh, sentences that you see in your Bible to really to make it more understandable to us. But that is not how it was originally written and recorded by Paul. Originally, this entire passage was a single and continuous kind of outburst of adoration and worship by the Apostle Paul as he talks about his God and as he talks about our God. And you actually see the entire Trinity at work in this passage. The God of the Bible, the Christian God, is a triune God, right? One God and three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what we see here is all three acting together in, in the, the work of salvation. You see God the Father planning and purposing our redemption. You see God the Son securing our redemption. And you see God the Holy Spirit applying our redemption in very real ways in our hearts in the here and now. And so I'd like to draw out of this passage three things that I think Paul is teaching us about Christian worship. First, the source of our worship, the center of our worship, and the experience of our worship. First, the source of our worship. One of the most remarkable things you see in this passage that, is that... Um, when it comes to you and I being Christians and, and being together in this way, it really has very little at all to do with, with us. This passage, in fact, has very little to say about you and I, other than the problem, perhaps, that we have created, that our sin has created, and the gifts of grace that we've received anyways. The focus here in these opening verses is not on us at all. It's on the goodness and the grace that has been extended to us in the gospel by who? By by God the Father. What you see here in this passage, in fact, is that God the Father is the subject of almost every main verb in these opening verses. Listen again to these verbs, which are telling us what God the Father has done and what God the Father continues to do for you and I as Christians. And what you see is that it's the Father who has blessed us, verse 3. It is the Father who has chosen us, verse 4. He has predestined us for adoption as his children, verse 5. It is the Father who lavishes his grace upon us, verse 8. It is the Father who makes himself and his plan known to us in verse, verse 9. Each and, every, each and every one of those actions finds their origin and their intent in God, God our Father, our Heavenly Father, our, our Abba Father. Amazing. And then as you turn <clears throat> from those verbs to the objects of those verbs, in other words, why the Father blessed us, why he chose us and adopted us and lavishes his grace upon us, Paul says it's because of his love, verse 4. It's because of his plan, verse 10. It's because of his will and his purposes, verses 5, 9, and 11. And it also tells us that he does all of this for his own pleasure. It says, for the Father's good pleasure in verses 5 and 9. Our Heavenly Father takes pleasure in doing the work of salvation. He enjoys saving sinners like you and I. He, he enjoys it. He enjoys you being his beloved child. 
the love and the grace and the good pleasure of God the Father is kind of bubbling up and spilling out of this passage. Paul could not be insisting any more forcefully in this passage that your becoming a member of the family of God was not due to coincidence nor chance, but to God's own sovereign will and good pleasure. That, according to Paul, is the decisive reason why you're a Christian and why you're sitting here today. And so, friends, you did not become a Christian because you're smart and you figured it all out. Now, you may be smart, but that's not why you're a Christian. Rather, you're a Christian because God planned and purposed that you would be a Christian from before the foundation of the world, it says in verse 4. And so if you're sitting here today and you're not a Christian, I want to suggest to you that you're not here by accident. I want to suggest to you that perhaps the reason you're sitting here today is because he may be planning and purposing that you're next. The gospel, after all, is not at all about who you are or what you've done. It's in every way about who God is and what God has done, and he is a good and, and gracious father. And in verse 10, Paul says he's a father with a plan. Paul starts talking about a plan, God's plan for the fullness of time, it says in verse 10, a plan that Paul says the Father has made known to us as, as his people. And Paul really leaves no room for confusion here that this plan, God's plan for humanity and for the world, although it starts with the Father's initiating grace, from there it centers squarely on the person and the work of, of Jesus Christ. And so whereas the source of our worship is found in the kindness and the grace of the Father, the, the center of our worship is in every way God, God the Son. In fact, Jesus is mentioned in this passage either by name or by title or by pronoun no fewer than 15 times. And so there can be no mistake as we talk about our worship and the, and the object of it that it all truly centers on Jesus. And the real thrust of it all, the core of it all, you find in, in verse 7, don't you? Look at verse 7 again. It says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. You can find the gospel explained in different ways and by different people in different places, but, but verse 7 of chapter 1 of the, the book of Ephesians, that's the core of the gospel, right? Distilled down into a very concise and a very, very compelling form. God, come into human history as the man, Christ Jesus, why? To, to redeem, to forgive sinners like you and I. How? By the shedding of his blood by the giving of his own life as, as payment. That's what the word redeem may, means. It means to, to make a payment. And why in the world would Jesus do all this? Verse 7 tells us, according to the riches of his grace. Friends, our, our worship in this place will always center squarely on that. On the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. That's, 
That's who we are as a church. That's what we're about. That's what we celebrate in this place each and every time we come together. And if false worship is really centering our lives on the the wrong things, which it is, and which at times we do, I think one of the main reasons we come into this space each week is to collectively kind of recenter our worship where it belongs, right, on on Jesus. And Paul, I think, here is going to kind of show us the way. He's going to uh, show us how this works, really practically speaking. We talked about the source of our worship, and we talked about the center of our worship. Let's talk a bit about the experience of our worship. After all, Christian worship It's supposed to be experienced, right? And in the final couple of verses of this passage, Paul starts talking about the Holy Spirit. And as he does, he's reminding us of something about about the present tense reality, the real-time dynamic of being a Christian and being the church together like this. The gospel is indeed about something that that happened in the past. It's indeed about something that's going to happen in the future, but it's also about something that is happening, right? Right here, right now, in real time, among us. In fact, did you know that according to the Bible, the Holy Spirit is involved not only in you becoming a Christian and you growing as a Christian, but also in you uh, worshiping as a Christian, Paul is going to show us three things here that characterize our experience of worship as Christians as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. First, Paul shows us here that worship, it involves thinking. After all, what is is Paul doing here? He's, He's thinking. He's taking an inventory, really, of the excellencies of his God. He's he's laying out all these truths, all of these marvelous truths about God the Father and about God the Son, right? Who they are, what they've done. He's, he's taking it in. He's thinking it through. This is, this is where worship begins. True worship begins when the truth about God, as revealed by the word of God, is taken in and, and thoughtfully considered. And so when we step into this place and open our Bibles and when we sing songs, when we sing the lyrics of the songs, we're, we're engaging our minds, right? We're, we're listening, we're considering, we're, we're thinking. And we're very much asking the Holy Spirit to help us, right? Do you do that? The Bible says we should. The Bible says we need his help. It says in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says we can't truly comprehend spiritual realities without the Holy Spirit's help. In those verses, it says, now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Holy Spirit explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. He's our teacher. He's our revealer. He illuminates the truth as we, as we take it in and as we think it through. But is, is merely thinking apart from something more, is that, is that really worship? We do take the scriptures very seriously here. We we don't pick and choose only the, the warm and wonderful passages. We, 
we work our way through the Bible verse by verse, and we, and we think deeply as, as we do. But merely thinking about theological concepts and, and processing them intellectually, I don't, I don't think that by itself is, is worship. We do ask our people to come into this place with their minds engaged. We come in expecting to think. But I also hope that you come in here expecting, expecting to feel something, too. Worship involves thinking. It demands it, in fact. But, but worship also involves feeling something, too. As Paul is laying out truth, he's taking it in, he's, he's thinking it through. And those truths, they begin causing something to happen inside of Paul. Those truths, they begin to, to move from Paul's head to Paul's heart. And almost, it's, it seems almost like he can't, he can't really contain himself. We're going to see that in a moment. Paul kind of bursting into praise three times as he, as he responds to what he's thinking and as, as he responds to what he's, what he's feeling. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit, too, in every way. The Holy Spirit helps us understand the truth of God's word intellectually, and he, but he, he also does more than that. He also makes those same truths real within us. This, I think, is why Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 16 would say that the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are children of God. And so the Holy Spirit testifies not only to our mind, but to your spirit that you are a beloved child of God. It is one thing to understand up here that you're a child of God. It is another thing altogether to experience it down here. It's another thing altogether for that truth to be experienced in, in your heart. So worship, it involves an awakening of our feelings for God. And so where feelings for God are dry or or dead, so too, it seems, is, is worship. True worship, it should sweep us up. It should, it should take us in. It's, it's an affair of the heart in every way. Richard Foster would say this about worship. He says, to worship is to know, to feel, and to experience the resurrected Christ in the midst of the gathered community, mediated by the Holy Spirit. That's what I want for our our church in this place each week to know and to, to feel and to experience our Savior in, in real relationship as his people, mediated in real time by the Holy Spirit who is, who is with us and who is, who is in us. Now you may say, hold on a second, Jeff, what are these feelings you're talking about? I'm not sure about this. And just so you don't think I'm making this up, let me give you a small sampling of the, the rich emotional responses found in worship that you find in the world's richest book of worship, the, the book of Psalms. In the book of Psalms, you find all sorts of emotions and experiences as God's people respond to him in worship. In Psalm chapter 5, verse 7, you see feelings of reverence and awe says, but I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. I bow down toward your holy temple in reverential awe of you. You find in other psalms that worship can include feelings of longing and desire for, for more of God. Psalm 42 verses 1 and 2 say this, as, as a deer longs 
for flowing streams. So I long for you, God. I, I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? Psalm 73, verse 25 says, Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. You find in the Psalms that worship often involves feelings of, of gratitude and, and thanksgiving. Psalm 100 verse 4 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Psalm 95 verses 1 and 3 says, Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song, for the Lord is a, a great God, a, a great king above, above all gods. Worship involves <clears throat> feeling. And the people writing these psalms, they were, they were feeling something. That much seems to be clear. William Temple said this about worship. He said, worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of, his, of will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration, he says. And so worship should sweep us up. It should really take us in, every, every bit of us. Okay, so we've talked about how worship involves thinking, how worship involves feeling. But worship, it involves doing something too, right? Worship involves responding to, to what you're thinking and what you're, what you're feeling. Throughout biblical history, worship has always involved action. In fact, the, the, the main word for worship in, in the Hebrew language literally means to bow down before, before God, to bow down. Worship has always involved doing, doing things like kneeling, right? Like lifting your hands, lifting your voices, praising and singing and celebrating and even weeping. Worship is active and these are very much acts of, of worship. There is a place in 2 Samuel verse 6 where we're told uh, King David, we're told he was dancing before the Lord with, with all of his might. That's pretty active. And God tells us, he commands us, in fact, again and again, he says, worship me. Worship me in these ways, in these active ways. Some people, some people don't like that. Some people ask the question, why is God always telling people in the Bible to, to praise him and to, to worship him. Doesn't that seem weird? Doesn't that seem egocentric? But at some level, I am convinced that God tells us to do these things for our own good and, and for our own joy. C.S. Lewis once said this. He said, the reason we like to praise what we enjoy is because our praise not merely expresses our enjoyment, it actually completes our enjoyment. It is the consummation of our enjoyment. And Lewis would give this illustration. He says, think about a young couple newly in love. Why do they keep telling one another how beautiful they are and how loved they are? Because their delight in the other is not fully complete unless it is expressed. 
And unless it is expressed, it is not fully experienced. Here's another one. If you're at a Seahawks game and Geno Smith throws a game-winning touchdown pass in the final seconds of the game, your, your enjoyment of that moment is entirely incomplete if you stand there with your, with your hands in your pockets. Your enjoyment of that moment only becomes complete as you, as you respond, right? As you, as you raise your hands, as you, as you raise your voice, as you celebrate what you're experiencing. And so when God tells us to worship him by doing, by being active, he's inviting us to, to complete our joy, to enhance our experience of him as we, as we praise and celebrate him. And this is why some of us raise our voices and raise our hands as we, as we sing songs in this place because our enjoyment in that moment is incomplete until and unless it is expressed in that sort of tangible way. And after all, isn't this exactly what Paul, you see Paul doing in this passage? Completing his joy by, by doing something? Not once, not twice, but, but three times. Paul, he responds to what is happening inside of him by doing something about it, right? Remember, he started out talking about God the Father, and then he started talking about God the Son, and then he talked about the Holy Spirit. And did you notice what, what he did each time? He, he burst into praise each time. He began praising each member of the Trinity in turn. He said in verse 6, to the praise of your glory, Father. He said in verse 12, to the praise of your glory, Holy Spirit, or Son, uh, Jesus, rather. And then in verse 14, he says, to the praise of your glory, Holy Spirit. Paul is completing his joy in worshiping his God, not only by thinking, not only by feeling, but by doing something about it, by, by turning to God and, and responding to him in, in praise and adoration. That's, that's worship. And it's a beautiful gift from, from God. And so let me encourage you today. Let us worship our God freely and ex even expressively in this place. Please don't be shy about lifting your voices or, or lifting your hands in worship or, or kneeling or, or bowing down or or even dancing before the Lord with, with all of your might if the Spirit so moves you. Now, I don't want to worry you that the dancing part doesn't really happen very often, but it's okay if it does. <laughs> At times, I think the greatest hindrance to us allowing ourselves to be swept up in, in worship is that we're too self-aware, we're too self-conscious, when what we really need to be is self-forgetful. And not to make it all about us, but to make it all about him. And so as we move into a time of singing here in a moment, let's do that today. Let's, let's make it all about him. Let's consider the marvelous truths that we've explored. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to enliven those truths and to, to awaken our affections for God. And let's respond rightly to him in worship. I believe we need this deeply. There's something unique that happens here in the gathering of God's people that nothing else in this world can offer. Because after all, this is not a, a human endeavor, at least I hope it's not with you. It is a spiritual endeavor. It is a spiritual participation with a, a certain spiritual power to, to reset and to recenter our wandering worship week in and week out back to where it belongs on Jesus. 
Let's pray together. God, we thank you for, for who you are. We thank you for what you're like, for all that you've done, for all that you've promised to do. Would we respond rightly to all of these things this morning? Holy Spirit, would you cause the truths that have been spoken and the truths that are about to be sung to, to come alive in our hearts? Thank you that we can enjoy and experience you in real time, in real relationship as you move among us. Would you do that now, God? Would you draw near to us as we draw near to you in Jesus' name? Amen. One of the things we do each week at this time in our gathering, and I think you do as well at Cross and Crown, is we, we partake in the Lord's Supper together. We this is something we do each week to kind of bring us back to center. As we're talking about the center of our worship, this brings us back to the center, right? We, we partake in the Lord's Supper together, and it's very much, it's an act of participatory worship, really, right? As we, as we think and as we feel and as we respond to, to who Jesus is and, and to what he's done for us. And so as we, as we partake in the Lord's Supper this morning, let's remember and reflect on Jesus and what he did. Ver coming back to verse 7, he, it, he gave his body, he shed his blood. Why? To redeem and to forgive us. And why? According to the riches of his grace. So over these next few moments, as we sing a couple of songs, I want to invite you to partake in the Lord's Supper at your own pace and consider these truths that we've explored today. Thank you. <laughs>